0: Please turn in your Bibles to the epistle to the Colossians in chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, about midway through your New Testaments. Colossians chapter 1, we've been in a series in the book of Colossians for a little over a month now. The past few weeks, we considered a very well-known passage in verses 15 through 20, uh, referred to often as the Christ hymn. It's all about who Jesus is. As the firstborn of creation, as the preeminent one. And we finished that series, our Advent series, last week. We continue on, though, in our series in Colossians this morning, looking at verses 21 through 23. But I want us to read, beginning in verse 19. So we'll read Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, the focus of this morning's message being on verses 21 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has now been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray once more. Lord God, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we pray that he would come now through the word preached and do that which only he can do you are the god of the human heart we look to you we trust you we hope in you to do those things that men and women cannot do that only you can do we pray this in jesus name amen Amen. as i said we return again to these verses this morning last week considering verses 19 through 21, but we want to return to verse 21 now and bringing in verses 22 through 23 to consider some themes last week we weren't able to consider together. Then God willing, next week, we'll conclude our exposition of chapter 1. These verses in 19 through 23, they really do set the table for the rest of the book. So last week, we observed and saw how this, this one, this Christ who is preeminent, who is the firstborn of all creation, who is the firstborn from the dead, Uh, this one who is the beginning and the end, this one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This Christ is involved through His death in reconciling all things to Himself. That's what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. He's reconciling all things to Himself, and we saw last week that that all things includes a lot more than just people. Like individuals like you and me. He's not just saving people from their sins individually. But rather, what that passage envisions is something that the whole Old Testament anticipated. That the Christ would come and that He would actually reconcile and reclaim the whole cosmos, the whole created order in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That actually, the Lord Jesus would bring about an end to everything that is wrong with the world. That He would bring about a harmonizing and a uniting and a reconciling of uh, all the created order in Himself through His death on the cross. That actually what Jesus was doing at the cross was a whole lot more than your and my individual salvation. But rather what He was doing was bringing about a renovation of the whole world. And ushering in a new heavens and a new earth which will be completed of course at the last day. But then we saw secondly when we moved into verse 21... That Paul moves from thinking just about who Jesus is in His preeminence and what He has done in reconciling all things to Himself. He turns now to address the Colossians and he says in verse 21, and you, you individual sinners, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, you, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. In other words. This great cosmic work of reconciling all things in himself, Paul is saying, you too, you Colossian Christians, you're part of this work that Christ is doing. And he could say the same thing to us. We who are the children of God and who have been united to the Lord Jesus, we are part of this great work of reconciliation that Christ is doing. Which means that Christ's work on the cross, though it certainly entails a lot more than our individual salvation, it involves nothing less than our individual salvation. Uh, This thing that Jesus is doing in reconciling all things in Himself includes us and our individual narratives and our individual sins and burdens and all our baggage and all our regrets and all the things that make us ashamed. He has reconciled us and saved us by His grace so that we too would be part of His redemptive purposes through what He has accomplished on the cross. Well, now I want to return to these verses and include now verses 22 and 23 to get more of the picture of what it is Christ means to do in and through us as the children of God. So we're moving now from the sort of the wide-angle lens of all things that are being reconciled in Christ and now focusing more narrowly on what Jesus is seeking to accomplish in His people. What is the work of reconciliation of us, individual sinners, to God? What is it meant to accomplish? What is it meant to achieve. So what I want to do is open up these verses, verses 21 through 23, under three main headings. We have a picture in this passage of our past, of our present, and of our future. So these are the three headings. We will consider, first of all, what we once were. Secondly, what we now are. And thirdly, how we must move forward. What we once were, what we now are, and how we must move forward. Okay? Consider with me first of all what we once were. Paul says in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled. What do we learn here about the past of these Colossian Christians and presumably? our past as well, those reading this letter 2,000 years on. You were once what? Three things, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's the description of these Colossian Christians. First of all, he says they were alienated. The root of that word literally means to be turned away, to be estranged. Uh, The idea is like that we had our backs to God, Okay, so the popular notion we hear nowadays that, that like we're all just seekers and we're all trying to find our way to God, the description Paul gives here of humanity outside of Christ is that we're not looking for Him. We're not neutral blank slates just looking for the best pitch from the right God. No, rather we are all alienated, turned away, estranged from God. Though His grace is oriented toward us, though He's ready to receive us, though He offers all kinds of blessings and kindnesses and mercy to us, the fundamental posture of the man or woman outside of Christ is that he or she is alienated from God. That is to say, their back is turned to God. We don't want Him. We don't pursue Him. We don't seek Him naturally. The second description here of who they once were, they're said to be hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. That's at least how the ESV renders it. I shared last week that at the root of that word is the same word that the Greeks would get their word enemy. To be hostile in mind is to take the posture of an enemy towards someone else. It could also be translated to be full of hate. You were once enemies of God. You were once full of hate, and I don't think that primarily means full of hatred toward one another, though we know from Titus 3.3 that's true. Paul describes us there as Hated by others and hating one another. But here I think the reference to being hostile in mind, to being full of hate, is a description of our posture toward God. Natural man hates God, is hostile in mind toward God, an enemy of God. Romans 8, 7 says a similar thing. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is to say, there is within the natural heart of men and women a natural hostility against God. We are naturally enemies and rebels toward God. And there's no natural way we can break that. We cannot break out of the native hostility and hatred that we feel toward God. Well, then there's a third description here. They were alienated. They were hostile in mind. Thirdly, doing evil deeds doing evil deeds, speaking principally of their conduct, their behavior, their speech perhaps. What do you think, when you hear that description, you were doing evil deeds? Paul's able to say that about them. What do you think he has in mind when you hear that phrase? What kinds of attitudes, behaviors, conduct, words, what do you think he has in mind? I don't think we need to wonder If you would turn to Colossians chapter 3, so just a page or two over to Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives a list of things that marked the Colossians when they were outside of Christ. Before they came to be reconciled to Him, there were certain behaviors that marked them, certain patterns of speech and attitudes and conduct that described them. So in Colossians 3… Verse 5, we read this, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Now, what is that? What's earthly in you? Sexual immorality, which is a catch-all phrase for all kinds of sexual sin. Impurity, that could be impurity of thought, impurity of speech, impurity of conduct. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I'm just going to stop there and just acknowledge the huge warning that that is. If we live our lives in sexual immorality and in covetousness, which is idolatry, and in impurity and evil desire, against these things, friends, make no mistake, the wrath of God is coming. Picking up in verse 7, chapter 3, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Who were they in their past? They were people who walked in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry. But now, verse 8, you must put them all the way. And then he adds more to the picture. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Like, that's who you were. Don't live like that anymore. Put off the old self with its practices, verse 10. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. He's saying, these things marked you. You were angry people. You were sexually immoral people. You were idolatrous people. You lived in wrath and in hatred in your relationships. You were marked by obscene talk. He says, these are the kinds of behaviors and attitudes and conduct and speech that marked you before you came to Christ. Now, a question. Is Paul… Describing here in Colossians 3, 5-10, and in our passage in Colossians 1.21, you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Is He describing an unusually sinful bunch of people in the Colossians? Or is He providing a larger commentary on human nature, He's so saying, you were these things, and He described some terrible things that marked their lives. Is he he saying, like, I've seen a lot of sinners in my life, but you all have kind of broken the mold. Like, you guys are off the charts sinful. You guys are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil. Look at these things that mark you. Like, I've seen my fair share of sinners, but you all are on another level. Or is he saying, this is mankind outside of Christ? I believe it's not the former, it can only be the latter, and I believe that for two reasons. Number one, Paul never met these people. You remember that? He never visited Colossae. He never met them. And yet he feels perfectly qualified and at ease to say, I know what you were like before you were reconciled to Christ. You were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I feel confident this description would attach you. Even though I've never met you, I've only you know, heard about you from Epaphras, I feel confident this shoe fits. But the second reason I would say I think I'm sure Paul is describing human nature naturally outside of Christ is that Paul seems to be able to describe everybody he writes to this same way. Like in like all of his letters, there's always some kind of description of who you once were or what you once were like. Tremendous coincidence if you ask me, unless he's making a larger commentary on Humanity and what humanity is. So he says to the Romans in Romans 3, verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Maybe it's a little bit better in Crete. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Well, Well, maybe if the Colossians and the Romans and the Cretans were all terribly sinful, perhaps the Ephesians might do a little bit better. Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No, Paul is not giving some kind of narrow, exclusive, stinging indictment to the Colossians. He's making a larger commentary on Who humanity is outside of Christ. We are all naturally alienated. Estranged from God. Backs turned to Him. We are all hostile in mind. Full of hatred toward God outside of Christ. And we all live our lives in doing evil deeds. This is human nature. And at this point, I just want to ask you pastorally. Have you embraced this view of human nature outside of Christ? Bible people, do you believe the Bible's description of who we are naturally apart from Jesus Christ? Like test this out. Do you really believe this? Test out your theology. Say, I believe in total depravity, pastor. Okay. Think of the sweetest meemaw outside of Christ what's her status before God? Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Think about the person in India who has never heard of Christ. Does this description fit him or her? Separated from God, living in wickedness, naturally full of hate toward God. Even though the things that could be known of God are plainly seen, Romans 1, they reject God naturally. There is a blindness and a hardness of heart. Think about your own dear children who are outside of Christ. Parents, do you know, do you believe your children outside of Christ are rebels against God? They are naturally alienated and hostile in their minds. God, I have to chuckle at times when people speak about the innocence of children. I got three of them, so I'm qualified to say this. I was with some little kids last night, a few families were together and our kids were playing, and I saw multiple acts take place that if adults did them, they would be incarcerated. No joke. I saw assault. I saw breaking and entry. I saw stealing. I saw battery, people taking a stick and whacking somebody with it. No, seriously, you think kids naturally do things pleasing to God? We we sung Psalm fifty one, David says that, Behold, in evil I was born. It's conceived and formed in sin. You have to believe this about your kids' parents, because otherwise how will you preach the gospel to them? Your kids are rebels against God. Your neighbors outside of Christ, however sweet they may appear naturally, they are alienated from God. This is the human condition. This is who we are before a just and holy God outside of Christ. All those who are outside of Christ are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And I'll just say, this to me is one of the biggest tests as far as whether or not we embrace the authority of the Bible. You have to believe the Bible's rap on you more than your own intuitions about yourself and the people around you? Wouldn't it be like a bunch of hard-hearted, sinful, wicked, recalcitrant sinners to have a better view of themselves than God would have? Wouldn't rebels against God and those who are hostile in mind, whose minds are warped by sin, wouldn't they think, you know what, I don't think I'm all that bad. And when the Bible says this about me, I don't, I don't really, I don't see myself in that, and I don't see my memo in that, and I don't see my kids in that. This is a crock. This is something I will not believe. Do we believe God's Word? Do we believe the picture of humanity we're given in the Bible? We must believe it because God has said it. He's revealed it this way. But there's a couple of reasons why I think this is crucial that we see ourselves this way when we were outside of Christ and those also who were outside of Christ. This view, a sinful man under the just wrath of God, does two things in particular. First of all, it intensifies our view of sin, which I guarantee you, whatever your thoughts are about sin, your own sins and the sins of others, they are not intense enough. Your sense of what Paul calls the exceeding sinfulness of sin is not where it should be. Our sense of the wickedness of sin against God is not what it ought to be. This view of mankind outside of Christ intensifies our view of sin. But then, wonderfully, blessedly, it enlarges our view of grace. Like, like, this is the brink He snatched me from. This is the pit He dragged me out of. I wasn't just you know, going along my merry way looking for God and being a good boy and a good girl and I, I did the church thing. No, I was an alien, a stranger to God. I was naturally full of hatred in my heart toward the Lord. I was caught up in all kinds of wickedness and He rescued me he saved me. He gave me a heart of flesh where there was only a heart of stone. And He gave me eyes of faith that can see where only there were blind eyes before. This intensifies our view of sin and enlarges our view of grace. This is the hell He rescued me from. I appreciated someone shared with me a quote this week from St. Jerome. Lived like 1,600 years ago. Talking about Christmas and the Incarnation. And the quote was that Jesus Christ was born in a dunghill because that's where He knew He would find us. You feel that, right? The the palaces and halls of glory that he had to condescend from to save his enemies. Sinners like you and me. This is who we once were. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But then Paul describes who they now are. Who we now are. This is the second point. We've considered who we once were. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Secondly, consider with me who we now are. Look again at verse 21. And you who once, once, no longer. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. What are these Colossian Christians now? They are reconciled. No longer enemies. No longer hostile. And that's who you were, but now you've been reconciled to God. You've been reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Accomplished objective fact through what Christ has done. Who are you Christian? You're no longer that one alienated and hostile in mind. You are someone who has been united to Jesus by His death, solely and completely through what the Lord has done. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He do it? Verse 14, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with His legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. You hear that? The record of debt that I owe, my rap sheet, all the just penalties for my sins that I have incurred, that you have incurred, from all your wicked thoughts, words, and actions. Do you know what Jesus did in the cross with that record of debt? That rap sheet that should do nothing but invite the just wrath of holy God forever? We read in verse 14 that Jesus took that receipt and He nailed it to the cross, thereby canceling it. All that I owe by my sin against the holy God through what Christ has objectively accomplished in His death, it's it's canceled. It's all gone. Like all my sins that are like scarlet, now washed whiter than snow. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, you know the text. We considered this a few months ago. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed he's done it it's over finished accomplished you are brother or sister in christ reconciled to god counted perfectly righteous forgiven and purged of all your sins through what jesus has done there's nothing to be added to that There's nothing to be kind of syncretized with that. It's not Jesus' death plus my works. Through what Christ has done on the cross, your sins are gone. You could could sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. We are reconciled to God in Christ through what Jesus has done. says more, He says that we're going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Verse 22. That is a reference to what our positional status will be on the last day. So, so, so when we appear, we who are the children of God who have been reconciled to Christ, when we appear before the Lord on the last day, it is said of us that we will appear holy and blameless and above reproach. We who were alienated and hostile in mind one day will stand before the risen Christ in glory and the record will be holy. The ruling will be blameless. He'll say they're, they're above reproach. There's no offense that can be brought against them. These are my children. These are those who have been united to my son. They are right with me, reconciled to me, holy, holy. And blameless and above reproach in my sight. Now I ask you, that's where this is headed. That's what's been accomplished. I will be holy and blameless and above reproach on the last day. Now how did that come about, do you think? The text doesn't exactly say. It's two things, two options I see. We, we could think that what this means is, okay, we've been reconciled to Jesus and then through our ongoing sanctification, we become more and more holy and more and more blameless and more and more above reproach. And we can get to the end and we've, we've gotten there. We've become totally holy, totally blameless, totally above reproach. I don't think that's at all what Paul is talking about. I think he's talking about a positional status that is ours purely and totally and only through virtue of our union with Christ. Because I have Him and I've been united to Him and my sins have been wiped away, I am regarded, even though I'm not sinlessly perfect, even though I still carry the old man with me, even though I still have my temptations and struggles, I am regarded through union with Christ as one who is holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This is a reference to our positional status, not some standard that we achieve by dint of our good works or something like that. Now, that does not at all obviate the importance of personal sanctification. I'm not saying that we're not to grow and killing our sin and becoming more like Christ. The rest of the book is going to tell us this is an urgent priority in our lives. We must become more like the Lord Jesus. We must put to death our sins. We must put on the new nature. But here in Colossians 1.22, Paul is referring to that fact, that objective reality, that status and position that Jesus purchased by His blood. Through what our Lord has done, we are counted. We are reckoned holy and blameless and above reproach before him now it's here if i may just for a moment i want to try to correct an error we sometimes hear people say this people sing this sometimes in songs the attitude that says you know jesus jesus wants me he wants me with all my flaws and my scars and my baggage and my sins. And he just loves all my foibles and my failures. And he receives me as me and he takes me as me and, 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 and that's what he wants. Blessedly true, in a sense. But one thing we learn here in this passage is that Jesus is doing something in us. He wants a certain outcome for us. He wants to present His people holy and blameless and above reproach. That's what He's doing in saving people. He wants to make them like His own dear Son. He wants them to bear His image and His imprint. He wants them in the here and now to walk in uprightness and godliness, and on the last day, He wants to present His bride, the church, the spotless and white and clean. Now, listen to me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus takes us all as we are. You can come to Jesus with all your baggage and all your sins and all your black marks and all the things that make you ashamed. He takes us as we are. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to me. You don't have to clean yourself up or undergo some kind of moral, moral renovation and renewal if you want to come to Jesus Christ. He takes us as we are, but what I want you to see is He doesn't leave us as we are. He wants to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Therefore, we should love holiness. We should want blamelessness. We should aspire to be above reproach because this is what He's doing This is what the Lord wants. He wants children who will stand before Him in peerless holiness and perfection and bright godliness and Christ's likeness on the last day. Yes, He will receive any of you who come with all your sins and all your baggage. And He'll walk with you and He'll disciple you. And He'll help you to grow. And little by little, He'll help you to put your sin to death. Make you more like His Son. And on the last day, through what Jesus has done, all the sins... All the spots, all the wrinkles will be gone, and you will appear before Him." Think of this, blameless, perfect, above reproach. Who we once were, who we now are, thirdly and finally, consider with me how we must move forward. So, Paul tells the Galatians, you were alienated, hostile, mind, doing evil deeds. Now you are reconciled through the cross through what the Lord has done, and He has secured for you the status of holiness, blamelessness, being above reproach on the last day. Well, what does that mean for how I move forward? How I walk into the future? What's the implications for me now? And in, in a sense, the rest of the book opens up these implications. As one who has been reconciled to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what does that mean for my life? The rest of the book is going to be about that. We get a bit of it here in verse 23, it says you've been reconciled to God, you'll appear holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's an interesting word, verse 23, if, if you are reconciled. You will appear holy and blameless and above reproach before Him if you continue in the faith. Is this a condition that's being supplied, like a condition we must meet? And does this condition, if it is a condition, does it jeopardize the outcome of Christ's death and our reconciliation to Him? And does it make salvation a matter of performance, of my good works? Okay, let's start with this. Verse 23 is a true and sincere condition, meaning if those who have been reconciled to Christ by His death do not continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and if they do in fact shift away from the hope of the gospel, they will not be saved. They will not be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach on the last day, rather they will be condemned. This is a true and sincere condition. If you are to be presented, my friend, on that day, holy, blameless, and above reproach before Christ, you must, you must, as a necessary condition, continue in the faith and not shift from the gospel. Now, that might sound a little disorienting to us who believe, as we do believe, in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We believe that. Our souls depend on that. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We are not saved on our own merits, but yet you hear that here's a condition that apparently I need to meet if I'm going to pass muster at the last judgment. Well, just know Paul is not saying anything unusual here. Like this is not an obscure or peculiar thing he's saying in Colossians 1.23, the Lord Himself said in Matthew 24 verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, endurance, perseverance is a condition to final salvation. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 3.13-14 says this, but exhort one another every day As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ, if we hold our confidence firm to the end. And then, of course, there are the panoply of texts that talk about the need for holiness in the Christian life. Hebrews 12.14 speaks of a holiness without which no man will see the Lord. In other words, no holiness, no heaven. James 2 speaks of faith. That is, without works, being dead and unable to save anyone. Peter in 2 Peter 1 verse 10 tells us to be diligent to confirm our calling and election and tells us there are qualities we must possess if we are to be granted entrance into Christ's kingdom. Friends, make no mistake. The Bible all over the place supplies genuine conditions that must be met for final salvation. You, Christian, must be holy. Holy. You must give yourself to good deeds. You must persevere in the faith. These are genuine conditions, and if they are not met, we will not be saved. In our text in Colossians 1.23, Paul says, we must indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is a sincere and genuine condition. Okay. let a breath out. Having said all of that, I want to say something about how we as the people of God are to hear these types of conditions. How are we to hear them and experience them? What's their bearing on our lives and our walk with Christ? How are we to conceive of them as Christian people? What, what is Paul's tone in Colossians 1.23? You have been reconciled. You will be presented holy and blameless before Him if you continue in the faith. What's, what's his tone? How should we read a condition like this and how should it hit our ears? The answer to that question, I think, when you have texts like these presenting these kind of conditions, it depends on the audience. Okay, so for hypocrites and fakers and for false Christians, the Bible says there's going to be a lot of those kinds of people. They fake an attachment to Christ, or they think they have attachment to Christ, but they never really turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in Him. For hypocrites, for fakers, for false Christians, these kinds of conditions should fill you with dread and should serve as a fearful but gracious warning. So those who are just pretending or going through the motions, haven't really repented and turned from sin, haven't really put their faith in Christ, aren't really following after Jesus, these conditions should serve as a prod to real repentance and faith in Christ and following after Him. You hear a warning like this, apparently Jesus expects that if I'm truly a Christian and truly reconciled to Him, I would continue in the faith, that I would be stable and steadfast. That I would not shift away from the Gospel. That I would walk in holiness. That I would live a certain quality of life that extends from a reconciled relationship with Jesus. And I don't see any of that. This should serve as a warning. You're not a Christian. What you need to do is to fly to Christ in repentance. Turn from your sins and believe on Him and follow Him for the first time. And then you can thank God that you heard such a condition and such a warning as this. Now that said... It's a different response, a different reaction, a different tone. I think Christians are meant to hear when they hear a condition like this. And remember, in our text, Paul is writing to a group of Christians that he has concluded are, in fact, reconciled to Christ. How are we who are following Christ, who have turned from our sins, believed on the Lord, who are the genuine children of God, how are we to hear a condition like this, and what effect should it have on us? Okay, I think. Christians should not hear a condition like this as a reason to doubt, but rather we should hear them as prods to ongoing faithfulness. So, I hear this condition, reconciled to Christ, you'll be presented holy and blameless on the last day if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the gospel. How am I supposed to experience that and hear that? It's not to cause me to doubt if I'm a true child of God. It's to serve as a prod to ongoing faithfulness. Here's what I mean. I have been reconciled to God in Christ, and I am living now as one who has been reconciled to God. I'm living this out, and I want to live this out, and I know I must live this out if I am a true child of God and if I've been reconciled to the Lord. It functions somewhat like this. You know, in the book of Hebrews, you have certain warning passages, like warning about falling away and things like that. We have one in Hebrews chapter 10. You could turn there if you want or you can listen as I read it. I'll read it slowly and carefully. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says. He says, "Therefore we, referring to we who are Christians, therefore we do not throw away, excuse me, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance." So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So you you are a child of God, but you have need of endurance. For we read this, verse 37, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the writer to the Hebrews says this, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and and preserve our souls." In other words, he's saying the Bible does give severe warnings to those who shrink back, but that's not us. We're Christians. We've been reconciled to Christ. We are not those Who shrink back. But no, we're the ones who persevere and endure to the preservation and saving of our souls. In Hebrews 6, after issuing a severe warning about falling away, the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 9 a similar thing. Though we speak in this way, though we give conditions and we supply warnings, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Even as I supply this condition, I feel sure I'm not describing someone who's falling away. No, I'm convinced you're the children of God. This should be cause for your ongoing faithfulness and endurance and perseverance. This isn't who we are, brothers and sisters. We don't shrink back. We don't give up our faith. Rather, we who are the children of God, we behave in accord with the new nature God has given to us. We persevere. We continue in the faith by God's grace. In other words, I think the writer to the Hebrews and Paul is saying, Christian, be who God has made you to be. Live in accord with the new nature that God has given you. Those who are truly reconciled to Christ are those who continue in the faith and persevere to the end. They will do it. Those who have been united to the Lord Jesus, they continue. They don't shift away from the gospel. They remain stable and steadfast. That's Paul's attitude in his letter to the Colossians. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, verse 22, he has now, he has now, it's accomplished, it's done. You have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to one day present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, I do not believe Paul is stating a tenuous kind of condition here. I don't think he's saying you can lose your salvation. I don't think he's saying, well, yes, you have been reconciled to God, but we'll see if it sticks. He's not saying that. He's saying all those who have been reconciled to God, they will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. They won't shift away from the gospel because that's what reconciled people do. He's saying, here is what you are. You are reconciled. And here's what you will be through what Christ has done. You will be holy, blameless, and above reproach. These are sure and settled, accomplished facts about you. Secured not by anything you did, but by the death of the Son of God. And here's what must happen between now and then. You must walk by faith. You must hold fast to the Gospel. And you will make it there. Paul is stating the necessary... Ensure sure condition that will be fulfilled by the Colossian Christians to ensure final blamelessness before Christ on the last day. So Paul is not here casting skepticism on their salvation. Like, have you really been reconciled? He's saying, no, this is the course that true reconciliation to Christ will take, faithfulness to Christ, persevering unto the end. I don't think he is introducing any doubt about the authenticity the quality of their faith. In fact, I know he's not. because Just a few verses later in Colossians 2.5, he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's not saying, well, let's see. Heads you make, it, tails you don't. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm convinced of something better about you. Christians, we, we, we are reconciled to God. And we will one day be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in Him. And part of the necessary condition that God is pleased to bring about for all those who are reconciled in Him is that we will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. We'll walk with God, we'll follow Him, we'll persevere unto the end. I tried my best this week to think of an illustration that would capture what it is that's going on here. This is the best I could come up with. have kids, my daughter Camden. Okay, I, I could say in a similar fashion, like what we have in verse 23, that Cammie will continue to be my and Jenna's daughter if she continues to reflect our DNA and bears the physical traits of being our child. If you see Cammy, she is unmistakably Jenna's daughter. I don't see so much of me, which is good for her, in Cammie. But, but, but if I said to her, she is my daughter, will continue to be my daughter if she reflects our DNA and continues to bear the traits of her mom and dad. Now, now am I saying that if we discover down the road that she doesn't have either of our DNA and that she doesn't bear the traits of her parents, that she is no longer our child? No, that's nonsense. It would mean she never was our child. If she doesn't have our DNA, something went wrong at the hospital. We got the wrong kid. She's not our child, right? If I stipulate as a condition of Camden remaining my daughter that she must have my DNA, maintain my DNA throughout her life, am I stating some kind of tenuous, wishy-washy kind of condition that she may or may not meet? Or am I saying if she is my child, this this is what happens for all those who are the children of Alex and Jenna? Similarly, I think that's how this condition works. If you are a child of God, if you have turned from your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been born again and have been united to the Son, what will happen? You will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. You will not shift away from the gospel. I need to draw to a close here. I'll just give one point of application. We've considered who we once were, alienated hostile mind doing evil deeds. We've considered who we now are, reconciled to Christ through His body of the flesh, be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him. We've considered how we must now go on. We must continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the gospel. How, what does this mean for our lives now? Like, what does this mean for how I walk into Monday morning? I hope it's very clear and obvious. When we hear... That all those who are reconciled to Christ are to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. What should we do? We should continue in the faith. We should persevere. We should hold fast to Christ. We should pursue stability and steadfastness. We should not shift away from the Gospel. It's an interesting phrase. We're going to see this in chapter 2. Paul's kind of tipping his hand here as to what he is concerned about in the Colossian context. There were teachers who were harassing these Christians trying to get them to shift away from the gospel. To begin to put their confidence in things other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, To begin to add to what Jesus has done by man-made commandments and human religion and things like that. And requiring certain things in the realm of circumcision or certain do's and do nots, certain man-made rules. They wanted to add or to just take them off entirely from who Christ was and who His gospel was. And this is rather how they were to live. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about what God has done in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through His incarnation, death, and resurrection to make a way of salvation for sinners who turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Him unto their everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And Paul is saying, this is, this is the ocean we swim in. We don't shift away from the gospel. It's not just that that message by which we got into this thing. Rather, our whole lives are to be lived according to the gospel. We need the gospel now as much as we needed it when we were first saved. And we will need it on our dying day as much as we need it today. And when we were first saved, he's saying don't listen to anybody who's going to tell you you need something more than the gospel. Don't listen to anyone who's going to tell you, that you know, the gospel isn't really how you're supposed to live the Christian life. It's not, really, it's not really the most important thing. Rather, there's a list of do's and don'ts you're supposed to do. Or rather, there's a certain kind of mysticism and asceticism you're supposed to adopt in order to be right with God or something like that. You're to engage into a program of social justice and a certain regimen of religious formalism and good works. We're not to believe any of that. But rather to recognize at all times the Gospel is to be the foundation of our lives. We got into this Christian family through the Gospel. And we're meant to make our way at all times through faith in the Gospel. Which means very practically, brothers and sisters, as you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the Gospel. This has implications for your private life. How you live privately is to be in accord with the Gospel. Which means I live my life recognizing that I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God. Every morning, every morning, I recognize that. I need the grace of God shown to me in Jesus Christ. And so I repent of my sins. And afresh I cling to Christ and to His Gospel. And if I fail and if I falter and if I sin again, I'm, I'm looking to His grace. I meant to go every day, every hour. Needing the Lord, needing the gospel, has implications for our private life. It has implications for our family life. Husbands and wives, what would it mean in your marriage not to shift away from the gospel? This never becomes quid pro quo. Marriage is not a 50 50 thing. We repent to one another, we forgive one another. To live in a marriage shaped by the gospel is to show unconditional love for one another. To not shift from the gospel means I am to live in my relationship with my husband, with my wife, with my kids, on the terms of the gospel itself. Which means that when we sin, as we will, we repent. And when we are sinned against, we forgive. And together we plead the grace of God because we know in our marriage all we have is the gospel. And marriage is meant to be a display of the gospel. And never do our marriages and our families behave toward one another on terms different than what we find in the gospel. It has implications for the family of God. What would it look like for a manual church to shift from the gospel? What would that look like? If we as a congregation are no longer centered on the gospel, it could look a few different ways. Uh, We could become absorbed in politics and social justice and activism and seeking to be all caught up in certain causes that might have nothing to do with what Christ has called us to do in Christian faithfulness. It, It might mean that we become highly legalistic in our relationship toward one another, that we begin to relate to one another on the terms of law. It may be that we become elitist kind of Christians. It become an exclusive kind of club. Only accept certain types of people or something like that. It it could be that we become more fixated on our own righteousness than the righteousness of Christ. It could be that we become more absorbed with man-made religion and rules and spirituality and all kinds of things than we do the Gospel of Christ Himself. Churches shift from the Gospel all the time. What it would look like for Emmanuel not to shift from the Gospel is that we would prize and treasure the gospel in our gatherings, Sunday by Sunday, that we would not stop confessing our sins in our worship gatherings, that we would not stop singing about the grace of God shown to us in Christ, that we would not stop preaching the gospel. This can happen to churches. We can shift from the gospel. But brothers and sisters together in our communal life as the people of God, we're to hold fast to the truth. We're to hold fast to Christ. We're to pursue stability and steadfastness in the things of God. We're to hold fast to the gospel, which means we must always treat one another and receive one another and love one another on the terms of the gospel. Your brother or sister sins against you. It is not a Christian option to hold a grudge against them. It's not a Christian option to withhold affection from them. It's not a Christian option to withhold forgiveness. Why? Because we're gospel people. It's not that we just believed that message one day back there and now we're doing our own thing. Our whole lives are shaped privately in our families, in our church, by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as reconciled people, we're meant to live on gospel terms toward one another. This has implications for your dying day you will need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ then as much as you ever needed it. When our eyes close in death, when we draw our final breath, you will not have graduated from the need for the grace of God to cover all of your sins. You're going to die. That day is going to come. What's your hope before God? It will never become, well... We discovered there were certain kind of rules we had to follow and certain traditions we had to, and I followed the traditions and I followed the code. Now, it will be then as it's always been. I have no other argument. I know no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. May God help us not to shift away from the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You that as You looked upon Your